0: Second Circuit could have just gone ahead, heard the appeal. If they agree with her on the merits, then there's nothing more for the district court to do. They wouldn't have had to remove her at all. So reaching out to say Judge Scheinland is removed from this case, particularly when there's nothing more for her to be doing right now and maybe nothing more in the future, depending on how the case comes out, it's hard to see that as anything other than a sort of deliberate attempt to reach out and slap her on the wrist.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on Legal
2: Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court, and my co-host Bob Ambrosi is off today. Before we start today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at GoClio.com. On this edition of Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll be discussing Judge Shira Scheinland's removal from the Floyd v. City of New York case, popularly known as the Stop and Frisk case. A federal appeals court not only removed her from the case, but also blocked her order that required changes to New York City's police department's Stop and Frisk program. The Second Circuit said the decisions of Judge Shira Scheinland will be stayed pending the outcome of appeal by the city. Some of you will remember that we covered the stop and frisk case and whether it could be implemented and maintaining the Fourth Amendment rights of the United States Constitution back in May. The same case has now raised the question of First Amendment rights of judges and more specifically whether Judge shineland was in violation of the Code of Conduct for federal judges and rightfully removed from the case. The appeals court said Judge Scheinlin ran afoul of the Code of Conduct by publicly appearing partial via media interviews and statements that criticized the court. Now counsel on behalf of the judge has filed a request for leave to file a motion to address the order of disqualification. That motion relies on the rules of appellate procedure and the First and Fifth Amendments. Overall, it argues that a judge's discussion of important legal issues is critical to a public understanding of the law and protected by the First Amendment. So we'll be speaking with a guest today that's covered Judge Scheindlin's removal from the case, and we'll introduce Kermit Roosevelt, a professor for the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He works in a diverse range of fields and focuses on constitutional law and conflict law. Professor Roosevelt was recently a part of the New York Times' Room for Debate, discussing Judge Scheinland's removal and what restrictions should be placed on judges. His article, What Do You Mean by Impartial?, outlined the issues when defining the word impartial. He served as a law clerk to Supreme Court Associate Justice David Souter and D.C. Circuit Honorable Stephen F. Williams. Thanks for joining us, Kermit.
0: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
2: We had invited also the editor of Above the Law Ely Missel, and unfortunately, he was not able to join us today, so we're proceeding with Kermit. So, Kermit, could you please give our listeners a brief overview of the case, how Judge Scheindlund ran afoul and where her appeals presently?
0: Well, you know, it's not entirely clear because there was never a, a hearing. There was never an adversary proceeding. Usually, if a judge is going to be disqualified, it's because one party asks for it, and that party will present their case and say exactly what they think the judge did wrong, Frequently, the judge actually can be represented by a lawyer. The judge will have a chance to respond. So we'll know what the claim is. We'll know what the evidence and support is. We'll know what the response is. And then the higher court will rule. But, you know, oddly, in this case, that didn't happen. You know, it's not the case that the city of New York said, we want Judge Scheindler removed. This is something the Second Circuit just did on its own. And they explained a little bit what they thought the judge had done wrong, but it's actually impossible to figure out exactly what it was. So it has something to do with statements that she gave in interviews. It has something to do with her suggestion that the plaintiffs could file a case and market-related and have it brought to her. But it's actually still surprisingly mysterious. And that's one of the things that she's now trying to clear up, I think, because she's taken the unusual step of asking leave to be heard. So now you know she wants to say... Here's what I did, and here's why I did it, and you need to explain more precisely what you think I did wrong.
2: Well, speaking of unusual circumstances, how unusual is it for a circuit court to just reach down and overturn a decision without any kind of an appeal by the parties?
0: Well, it's very unusual. Now, it's not all that unusual to stay a district court decision pending appeal. So the district court says, This is unconstitutional, you can't do it. The city says, We still think it's constitutional, we're not giving up. We want an appeal, and sometimes it's not that unusual for the Court of Appeals to say, while we're still considering this case before we reach our final decision, we're going to stay the district court's order so the law can still be enforced. What is unusual, what's very unusual, is to disqualify a lower court judge without the parties asking for it.
2: And it's a real slap in the face, isn't it?
0: Well, yes, it is. It's a slap in the face, one, because the city didn't ask for it. So they just, they reached out and did this on their own. And two, because they've stayed her decision. There's nothing more for the district court to be doing now. So the second circuit could have just gone ahead, heard the appeal. If they agree with her on the merits, then there's nothing more for the district court to do. They wouldn't have had to remove her at all. So reaching out to say, Judge Shindlin is removed from this case, particularly when there's nothing more for her to be doing right now and maybe nothing more in the future, depending on how the case comes out. It's hard to see that as anything other than a sort of deliberate attempt to reach out and slap her on the wrist.
2: Do you have any idea what prompted this? Has there been a rash of judges speaking out lately about their cases and the circuit courts have felt the need to put a clamp on it?
0: Well, no, there, there hasn't been. The judges are usually quite hesitant to speak out, and Judge Steinle is is an outlier in that respect in that she's more willing than most judges, I think, to talk about her general approach to judging and the kinds of issues that she's confronted. But, you know, I think she should be commended for that, because I think that we would be much better served if more of our judges were willing to talk openly about the kinds of issues that come before them and to enhance the public understanding of their jobs.
2: Where is the appropriate line between the First Amendment and the judge's judicial responsibility to remain impartial?
0: Well... I should say first, maybe, that I don't think there's a real First Amendment argument here. It's not as though the government is trying to put her in jail or fine her for saying something, which is sort of your classic First Amendment problem. And she is a government employee. She's a government actor. So when the government is trying to say, hey, government employee, your speech is interfering with your ability to do the job, and because of that, we're going to limit your duties or fire you, they face a much lower First Amendment burden. And usually the government can do that if you're talking about job-related speech that calls into question the government employee's ability to do the job, the government as employer is usually able to respond to that. Now, of course, they can't fire her because she's a federal judge with life tenure. But the idea that you know, when a judge says something that calls impartiality into question, there's going to be a response, maybe removing that judge from the case, I don't think there's any real First Amendment problem with that. And even Judge Scheinland's motion doesn't say this is a First Amendment argument. They talk about sort of First Amendment values, There are some issues on which judges really should be impartial, and we expect them to have no opinions before the case is tried. And those are basically facts about a specific case, you know, who did what to whom, is the defendant guilty. Certainly, if a judge talks about that before the case begins or before all the evidence is in, that gives an appearance of impropriety, and and that kind of speech, I think, is probably appropriately sanctionable. Judges also have opinions about broader questions of law. And we should expect them to have those opinions. I mean, as a judge gains experience, even back as a law student, people form opinions about what the correct interpretation of the law is. I do think there's some justification for saying that judges shouldn't talk about those, at least insofar as they relate to pending cases, because it might give the impression that the judge has made up his or her mind and is not willing to hear one side's arguments fairly. So, you know, that's a situation where judges do have these opinions, but maybe they shouldn't talk about them.
2: Well, if her First Amendment argument really isn't a true First Amendment argument, what do you think her strongest argument is on appeal?
0: Well, her strongest argument on appeal is that the Second Circuit didn't explain what she did wrong, so it's not really clear that they have any basis for this, and they didn't give her a chance to defend herself.
2: notice on the opportunity to be heard?
0: Yeah, they didn't give her an opportunity to be heard, which is the normal Second Circuit practice. Now, you know, there's no requirement that the Second Circuit give her that chance. It's not as though they're breaking the law if they don't, but it's very unusual. It's quite disrespectful. It seems kind of unfair. So if the Second Circuit is interested in maybe preserving harmonious relations between the appeals court judges and the district court judges, they might want to try to give this a more considered judgment.
2: It almost sounds like it's a personality conflict. Well, you know, that could be. I've been struggling
0: with trying to figure out why the second circuit did this and you know the the answer is not that it was a super conservative panel and a super liberal district judge or something like that the judges on the second circuit panel who did this are well respected and relatively moderate politically i think so it probably does have something more to do with personality or a sense of decorum perhaps uh the second circuit panel has different views about what it's appropriate for judges to say to reporters
2: and what is it that's laid down in the law that judges can't do and can't talk about? I always thought that it was, I can't talk about a pending case. That was just a general rule that I'd always understood that judges are precluded from doing. What's the rule here?
0: Well, they're certainly not allowed to talk about pending cases. The rules are written, usually the canons of judicial conduct, in somewhat more general terms. So judges should avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety anything that suggests a lack of impartiality in a specific case. So if, you know, while a case is going on, the judge is talking to the media and saying, oh, I think this guy is making a really good case, and the other side faces an uphill battle, that would suggest that the judge is not being impartial. So it's not necessarily spelled out in precise rules, which is one of the reasons why judges are generally so cautious.
2: And when they do speak, and they're not supposed to speak about... Pen. Is that essentially... I mean, it seems to me that that's what the criticism of the Second Circuit is here, that she has spoken about a pending case.
0: Yes. And Judge Sheinland's motion actually said something about that. So if you read through the articles, the news articles that the Second Circuit cited, as I did it, it was not entirely clear to me what they were objecting to. Judge Scheinland seems to think that some of those articles quoted from her opinion, from opinions she had written in the Floyd case, And that made it seem as though she had said those things in the interview and had thus been discussing a specific case when, in fact, she had not. And, you know, it's possible that that kind of misunderstanding was the basis for all of this. A judge could say quite harsh things in an opinion about one side of litigation, and it would be quite improper to say those things in an interview. And if the Second Circuit mistakenly thought that particular statements had been made in an interview rather than in a published opinion... That might explain what they did. Although, you know, that would suggest that they made a serious mistake in not giving her the opportunity to be heard.
2: Well, Kermit, before we move on to the next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor.
0: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud? And is it a difficult process?
1: No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, pr- a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes, and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com.
2: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. We're interviewing Kermit Roosevelt, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. Kermit, before the break, you were talking about some things that the Second Circuit had indicated to Judge Scheinland, do you think that the Second Circuit now is is going to say, well, maybe we acted a little bit too precipitously and we need to back off and and let her proceed? Or does it seem to you that when it comes right down to it, the Second Circuit's going to stand firm, set an example and say, we're not going to tolerate judges talking about pending cases in any form other than in written opinions. And uh, you're done. What do you think is going to happen?
0: Well, I think that they should take another look at it because it seems to me there are a lot of unanswered questions on the merits as to, you know, why they did this and what her explanation would be. I think it's unlikely that they will, though. So one of the things that would be well-served by reconsidering this would be the harmonious and collegial relations between the Court of Appeals judges and the district court judges. But on the other hand, you have to worry perhaps about the relations between the Court of Appeals judges themselves. So the way that this could be reviewed if the panel is not inclined to reconsider its ruling, which is probably very unlikely, would be for the entire Second Circuit to say, we're going to take this in bank and revisit the ruling. But that, you know, seems sort of disrespectful, perhaps, to the judges on the panel. And the Second Circuit has a very, very low percentage of taking cases in bank. So they almost never reconsider panel rulings.
2: In the Ninth Circuit out here in California where I live, on bank opinions or reviews are not disclosed who the, the judges are that elect to do the review. How does it work in the second circuit?
0: Not actually entirely sure. I, I clerked on the DC circuit, and the way that they did it there was a majority of all active judges could vote to rehear and bank, and then the entire court would hear it.
2: I have a separate question apart from this whole discussion of the Floyd case. Judge Scheinland is highly regarded or in some instances, I think, feared as an e-discovery voice, a very prominent one. And uh, her Zubalaki opinions are cited regularly and are followed uh, within the e-discovery industry. How do you think that this ruling is going to have an effect on her ability to be able to continue that influential uh, standpoint from the e-discovery area?
0: I wouldn't expect it to have any influence on that really. I mean, it's one thing if there's a sort of public shaming of a judge and all of the commentators say, yes, you know, what this judge did was wrong and the the appeals court was right to bring them back in line. If you look at the news commentary on this, I don't think I've seen a single person saying, yes, the Second Circuit was right. I mean, commentators on websites, perhaps, but I don't think that any media outlet has really taken the position this was an appropriate thing to do. So, you know assuming that the second circuit doesn't revisit the ruling which i think they probably won't i think it's going to end up people will think about it as anomalous and attributable perhaps in part to the high profile nature of this litigation and just one of the strange things that happens when you have very politically salient politically charged cases going on
2: and where does this leave the actual case i mean right now the judge's ruling was that the stop and frisk program was unconstitutional this appears to have voided that ruling what position are the parties in now?
0: Well, it's sort of a mess at the moment because now they're litigating this extra issue. They're litigating the removal, which is distinct from the merits. So now, you know, the, the plaintiffs are saying, we want Judge Scheinland back. We think you made a mistake removing her. Understandably so, right, because they were doing well with her. But probably what's going to happen to this is that it's going to be overtaken by politics because de Blasio is not a supporter of stop and frisk, So probably before this litigation can reach an end through the ordinary legal process, de Blasio is going to change the policy.
2: Do you have any inkling that there's potentially any Supreme Court involvement in this mess or do you think they're just gonna throw their hands up in there and say we are not even interested in this?
0: Well there could be Supreme Court involvement on the merits, I think, because you know it's an interesting constitutional question. That's the kind of thing that the Supreme Court might well hear, particularly if the ultimate result is the Second Circuit says this is unconstitutional. Frequently, when a state law or state practice is held unconstitutional, the Supreme Court thinks we should hear that case, because if you're going to tell the city of New York they can't do this, if the federal courts are going to say that, it should be the Supreme Court saying it, and not just the Second Circuit. So if this went all the way to a final judgment on the merits at the Second Circuit level, and the plaintiffs won I would say the chances of Supreme Court review are reasonably good. As far as the removal of Judge Steineland goes, I don't think there's any chance the Supreme Court would hear that. I mean, that's just an application of canons of judicial behavior. There's a lot of discretion with the Second Circuit.
2: Would you expect to see in the substantive opinion from the Supreme Court any type of a footnote or reference to this little debacle?
0: No, I don't think so. The Supreme Court really does not like to consider issues in a cursory manner or on an undeveloped record or without the benefit of full briefing, because what they say is so important and so binding for the rest of the nation, they like to make sure that they're getting it right when they do address it. So I, I don't think there's any chance that they would want to cast a little footnote about it.
2: Well, we're just about to the point in our show where we've reached our section of program where we're going to discuss your final thoughts. So Kermit, if you could just wrap up and give us your final thoughts along with your contact information so our listeners can reach out and uh, contact you if they'd like.
0: Well, I think that the description of this as a stop and frisk of Judge Simon is actually remarkably apt because it's an example of the Second Circuit exerting its authority, not necessarily because she had done anything wrong, but really just to show that they had the power to do it. And I can be reached at kroosevelt at edu.
2: Great. Thank you very much. And this is the segment where we have the opportunity to put our final thoughts in and Bob and I typically do that. But since Bob's off today, it'll be uh, my final thoughts for 30 seconds. So we'll start now. Essentially, I look at this like the Second Circuit has definitely, as you said, stopped and frisked Judge Scheindland and told her that she's a little bit out of line. I think they've done this to put a clamp on some of the other judges who may have been speaking and send a message. It's an unfortunate one that it couldn't have been handled privately, that it was handled so publicly, but Judge Shindlin's got a high profile in a number of other cases, and I think that they really meant to make an example of it, and that's the buzz. So it brings us to the end of our show. Thanks so much for joining us, Kermit, and to our audience, thank you for listening. I'm Craig Williams. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to
1: lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.